Good evening. My name is Vivian Fisher, and I manage the African American Department. And on behalf of Dr. Carla Hayden, the CEO of Pratt, the Board of Trustees, and the Board of Directors, I welcome each and every one of you here this evening to what shall be a very inspiring lecture. It is my pleasure to introduce to you Amy Nathan, who is an award-winning author of several books, including Yankee Doodle Gals. She, not only did she grow up in Baltimore and she went to Western High School, but she's also a Harvard graduate with master's degrees from the Harvard Graduate School of Education and also Columbia's Teachers College. She grew up in Baltimore, as I mentioned, where she went to Western, and this was her first entree into the civil rights era during the 1960s. So without further ado, please welcome Amy Nathan to the podium. Thank you so much for inviting me. Um, so we can all be here today to commemorate um, important events in Baltimore civil rights history, which are about to have their 50th anniversary next year. The um, 19, July 1963 uh, demonstrations that ended segregation at Gwyn Oak Amusement Park. Uh, Gwyn Oak back then was the most popular amusement park in Baltimore. And the uh, first day when it ended segregation was the same day as a very important day in the civil rights movement as a whole, the uh, August 28, 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, where Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave his I Have a Dream speech. Um, I'm lucky today to have several people who were very important in um, ending segregation at that park who are here with us. And uh, after I give a brief um, slide presentation to give you the basic story of, that's told in the book, uh, Round and Round Together, they're going to tell you a little bit about how they felt about taking part in demonstrations back then. So let me introduce them to you now. Um, uh, he, all of them here took part in demonstrations at Gwyn Oak except one. So I'll introduce her first. And the first, that is uh, Joyce Dennison. There, if you'd stand up and just let people see you. She uh, took part in a demonstration that set the stage for the demonstrations at Gwyn Oak. She um, was a Morgan State College student in 1963 and then went on to be a teacher and uh, served in the Army for uh, many years and is now retired. Uh, all the rest of, of the, our guests tonight um, took part in the demonstrations. Um, Charles Mason, uh, sitting next to Ms. Dennison, um, he uh, had a variety of jobs in his career, um, ending as a parole officer, and he's retired, but he also worked in programs for uh, young people. Um, on the other side of Ms. Dennison is Lou Coleman. She was a teacher in the Baltimore Public Schools for many years, and after she retired, has been very active in after-school programs for young people. Her son, Tom Coleman, is here, and uh, he um, is uh, author of a newly released book on um, risk management financial planning. Right, so it's something that we all need right now. And. Um, uh, John Romer here, he um, was a, a teacher, uh, recently retired from uh, the Park School where he was a teacher and a librarian and for several years he was the executive um, director of the Maryland chapter of the American Civil Liberties Union. So um, our 
Oh, yes, and there, you're supposed to be down here. Uh, there's Lydia Wilkins, so she, she can um, um, sit back there if she wants. Uh, she uh, is currently working for the uh, Office of Employment Opportunity and Civil Rights um, in the, fed the federal um, office. Okay, I think that's all of our guests. But you're, you're Mr. Crockett, right? Yes, I met him at a program at the Maryland Historical Society. I didn't know him when I was writing the book, so he didn't get in the book, but he also participated in um, the demonstrations at, at Gwyn Oak. And so when we open it up for people to talk, I hope you will uh, you know, add some of your memories too. Okay, so um, I'm very glad to be back at, at um, at Enoch Pratt, as um, you heard, I went to Western High School. And when I went to Western, it was just a few blocks away at the corner of Howard and Center Street. So this library was really our local library. And our senior year, they trusted us to go off campus. And so we would come here for study hall and to do research for term papers and things. So we really, um, this was our, our home library. Um, I'm going to give a, a brief slide presentation that's going to just give the bare outlines of the story that's in um, Round and Round Together. There will be many more details, many more examples in there, but I want to keep it to a minimum so there's time for, for our guests to speak. Then we're going to show some footage from WMAR-TV that came from the University of Baltimore archives of the actual protests in 1963, and then we'll open it up for, for our guests to speak. So even though I grew up in Baltimore, I did not, in fact, realize that um, Gwyn Oak ended segregation on the same day as um, the March on Washington. I learned about that um, about four years ago when I read C. Fraser Smith's book, Here Lies Jim Crow. Uh, there was a brief mention in the back of the book uh, that not only did the park end segregation on the day of the March of Washington, but the first African-American child to go on a ride there that day was little 11-month-old Sharon Langley, who um, took a ride on the merry-go-round. And I thought, what a great idea for a book for kids. On the same day that Dr. King in Washington was talking about his dream that one day black and white kids would learn to get along, there was an example of it happening uh, 40 miles away in Baltimore. Because on either side of Sharon, where she rode, were white kids. And they got along just fine at this park that had been the scene of turmoil for so long. So I decided to find out how that happened. So I read lots of books and articles on the era. and. Um, including an excellent two-part series that was in the Baltimore Sun in 1998, written by Linnell Smith. But I quickly found a fact on the Smithsonian website that wasn't in any of these books or articles, and that was that the merry-go-round that she rode is now at the Smithsonian on the National Mall in front of the Castle Building and the Arts and Industry Building. And it's been there since 1981. It moved there after Gwyn Oak um, closed in 1972, having been devastated by Hurricane Agnes. And um, I contacted the Smithsonian, and all they knew was that the Mary Grand used to be at Gwyn Oak, but they knew nothing about civil rights at Gwyn Oak. They knew nothing about Sharon Langley hadn't taken that ride. They knew nothing about the fact that photos of her were in newspapers the next day. Um, so it seemed to me that nobody yet had made the connection between this um, beautiful carousel on the mall, the March on Washington, and civil rights demonstrations at Gwyn Oak. As I did more research, I realized that um, 
The protests that happened at Gwyn Oak were a direct result of the groundwork that had been laid for many years by protests and court cases against segregation and going on here in Baltimore and around the country. And I also realized that the, um, the changing strategies that were uh, that happened over the years at Gwyn Oak, because the protests there went on for almost 10 years, um, reflected the, 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 the changes that were going on in the civil rights movement as a whole. So I decided not to write a picture book for little kids, which was my first idea, but instead to write a book for teenagers and adults that would use the Gwyn Oak story as a kind of case study to give an overview of the civil rights movement as a whole, both in Baltimore and elsewhere. Now let's give a little bit of the history of Gwyn Oak. So it started in 1894, and uh, right from the very start, it was uh, a whites-only park, which was typical of amusement parks in the South back then, and also, as I found in my research, also in some amusement parks up north, too. Um, in 18, oh, here's some photographs of Gwyn Oak from the 1940s, when it was still uh, uh, whites-only. Some of you may have had the courage to ride that um, rickety uh, roller coaster. I certainly never had the courage to do that. And there's some of the other rides. In 1947, the owners bought a, a brand new merry-go-round for the park. It was made by the most famous um, carousel maker in the country, the Alan Herschel Company. And um, when Gwyn Oak opened, that was the time when the Jim Crow segregation laws and rules were beginning to spread across the South. And two years later, um, is when the Supreme Court gave its stamp of approval to those laws with the Plessy versus Ferguson decision, which established the principle of separate but equal, which um, was used as a justification for segregation that as long as the separate facilities provided for African Americans were the same as the facilities for whites, then that was okay. But of course, as we all know, that was a fiction. The uh, separate facilities were never truly equal to those for white people. And about 60 years later, the Supreme Court reversed its opinion on that and, and out overruled um, separate but equal in the Brown versus Board of Education decision, which said there could no longer be separate schools for blacks and white. And Baltimore was one of the first southern cities to go along with the Supreme Court ruling and integrated its schools that September, September 1954. Um, actually, Baltimore had beat the Supreme Court by two years because in 1952, um, Polly integrated not the whole school, just the advanced um, A course, the uh, college prep course. Um, now, it was right after the, the uh, Brown versus Board of Education decision that the protests started at Gwyn Oak, and the organization that led the protests was um, opened a new branch in Baltimore the year before Brown versus Board of Education, CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality, opened a branch in Baltimore in 1953. And in 1953, Baltimore CORE teamed up with students at Morgan State College to um, hold sit-ins at lunch counters at um, variety stores, and they were remarkably successful. They integrated lunch counters at um, Kresge's, McGrory's, Woolworth's, and eventually at Reed's Drugstore, which you've probably been reading about a lot in the newspapers lately. In 1955, the Morgan students formed their own civil rights group, the Civic Interest Group. And by 1954, when Brown versus Board of Education decision came down, there had been some modest 
progress in Baltimore in, in, in ending certain aspects of segregation. For example, um, there was no longer segregated seating at Ford's Theater thanks to pickets that the NAACP had mounted. Um, several years earlier, um, the NAACP won a court case that opened up um, hiring right here at Enoch Pratt. Um, there were other advances that are mentioned in the book. I mean, in 1954, um, first three African Americans were elected to the Maryland State Legislature. But despite all those advances, in March 1955, the Baltimore Sun reported on a very large survey of businesses around uh, Baltimore, which found that 91% of businesses in Baltimore were still segregated. Um, despite that, the um, Board of Education's decision to integrate the schools energized people, activists in Baltimore. And so in the summer of 1955, CORE started protesting at Gwyn Oak. And their first major protest of that um, season happened over Labor Day weekend at the All Nations Day Festival. Now this was a festival that was supposed to uh, honor the cultures of all nations, but of course they never invited Africans or African Americans. Um, the, the, they sort of thought that if they just pointed out the, the irony, the inconsistency of that, that people would say, oh my gosh, of course, that's ridiculous, and they would uh, give in and, and change. Well, that did not happen. Um, uh, the, the, their first protest did not succeed in, in integrating the park. But I want to put this in context, that this happened three months before Dr. King made his very first appearance on the scene as a civil rights leader when he led the Montgomery bus boycott. So it was very early in the, the, the modern era of civil rights. Um, every every um, year on All Nations Day, it, this was just a festival that was held at Gwyn Oak. It wasn't like it was a festival that was you know a nationwide festival or anything. But um, they would have the protests there, and they, they never worked. Um, they were kind of small. Usually only a few dozen people showed up each time. And even in 1959, when uh, five protesters were forcibly ejected and arrested, they still didn't get very much press coverage and definitely didn't um, spark public outrage and the park didn't change. But the leaders of CORE and the Morgan State Scholar students began to pay attention to the strategies that were proving more effective down south, um, having large demonstrations, nonviolent <coughs> demonstrations, having uh, abundant press coverage in demonstrations like the Montgomery bus boycott or the 1960 um, lunch counter sit-ins that started in North Carolina, or most important for our story, the 1961 Freedom Rides that introduced the strategy that would finally work at Gwyn Oak, and that was massive arrests. Um, these strategies, these more assertive strategies, came to Baltimore thanks to Morgan State College students. Now, they had been having sit-ins out near the Morgan campus at restaurants for several years without much luck. But in 1960, they made the bold move of taking their protests downtown, and large numbers of Morgan students came downtown, buses hired by the NAACP, and um, managed to integrate all the restaurants at the major department stores. They uh, continued on to other restaurants downtown, including Hooper's, um, where two 16-year-olds um, were arrested in 1960, uh, Robert Bell, who is now um, Chief Justice of the Maryland Court of Appeals, and Mary Welcome. Uh, is she here? Mary Welcome here? No, she said she might come, um, who is an, uh, an assistant um, attorney general of the state. Um, members of CORE, at that time CORE began to have um, younger leaders, including John Romer and Charles Mason, uh, who were more willing to um, 
do try some of the more assertive tactics that were being tried elsewhere. And they teamed up with the Morgan students to have um, sit-ins at restaurants all over the state of Maryland for the next two years. And just about every weekend, uh, Mr. Mason told me, they were organizing in uh, Baltimore, uh, Route 40, the Eastern Shore, Western Maryland. Um, and in 1962, um, members of CORE tried something different with the All Nations Day Festival by turning it into a No Nations Day Festival by persuading, um, with Mr. Romer uh, very persuasively persuading, um, the foreign governments not to participate that year. That year also, the Archdiocese announced a boycott of um, of Gwyn Oak, not allowing parochial schools to have picnics or parties at Gwyn Oak. And picnics or parties apparently are the, the, uh, the, the mainstay of the financial security of an amusement park. Um, but the Morgan students pushed things forward even more in February 1963 when they introduced the idea of mass arrests in demonstrations that they held at the movie theater at Northwood Shopping Center. Um, more than 1,500 protesters participated, mostly Morgan students, but also students from Goucher and Hopkins and uh, members of CORE and ACP, local people. And um, there's Joyce Dennison. She was a very good student studying her, uh, her textbook while spending three days in jail. Um, and uh, she, she told me a really interesting story that her mother did not know, that they covered for each other. And when m parents would call to see if their, their children were all right, um, the, the dorm mates would say, oh, oh, she's at the library. You know? And that her, her mother didn't find out till her sister saw this picture of her in Jet magazine and said, mother, do you know where your daughter is? Um, so CORE decided that, um, that was the strategy to try that summer. And they chose a much more attention-getting day, the 4th of July, and they did get much more press attention, um, partly because they had many, many more protesters uh, were bussed in from New York, Philadelphia, Washington, as far away as um, um, New Haven, Connecticut. Um, and many of the protesters were members of the clergy, priests, rabbis, um, ministers. Um, and that was because a month before, the National Council of Churches and the Central Conference of Rabbis decided it was time for clergy to stop just preaching against segregation, but to get out there on the picket lines and do something about it. And uh, so at that protest, 283 people were arrested. Uh, among them, um, more than 20 clergy, and some of those clergy were quite prominent national leaders. The fellow in the straw hat, was Eugene Carson Blake, who then was the head of the Presbyterian Church in the United States. Um, William Stone Coffin, the, the uh, chaplain at Yale, he was there. He was arrested. In the sunglasses is uh, Marion Bascom, who uh, was the pastor for many years at Douglas Memorial. Um, the New York Times reported that this was the first time that so large a group of important clergymen of all three major faiths had participated together in a direct concerted protest against discrimination. Now, of course, clergy had participated in, in other demonstrations, but this apparently, according to the New York Times and uh, other articles that I read, this was the largest number in any one single demonstration at that point. It was really kind of a turning point in the civil rights movement when especially white clergy taking part. And um, you, why are they carrying that girl? No, it's not that she's sick, that she sat down and refused to walk to the uh, police vans, so the police officers had to carry her. And these girls used their lipstick to write freedom now on the side of the, uh, of the bus. Three days later, they did it again. 
Um, 95 protesters were arrested on July 7th, and this protest um, produced uh, three photographs that I think sort of helped um, change public opinion because um, they, they were images that you might expect to see more from the Deep South, not from Baltimore. And at that point, Baltimore and Maryland had really begun to change. By, by then, Baltimore and Maryland had both passed limited public accommodations laws that outlawed um, segregation at um, hotels and restaurants, but not at businesses like amusement parks. And there is uh, Luke Holman in the back holding baby Steve, and there's uh, Tom right there in the front holding his father's hand. His father was... Um, uh, Johns Hopkins University professor of sociology, um, James Coleman, the author of the James uh, of the Coleman Report, and uh, his brother John behind. Uh, they were taken off to, in a police car and, and arrested. And you'll see there's footage of it. We have footage of it coming up of them climbing into that police car. Uh, another picture showed the bloodied face of um, Allison Brown, who uh, was hit in the face by a rock thrown by one of the counter demonstrators. And these people are walking off to be arrested singing, We Shall Overcome. Uh, the, the guy on the left is um, Arthur Waskow, who now is a rabbi and um, quite a rabble rousing rabbi at, at that. He's head of a group called the Shalom Center. Uh, he's been very active in the, in the Occupy movement. And, uh, but he says that um, this really, taking part in this demonstration really changed his life. Before then, he was an academic who wrote about demonstrations. And taking part in this and getting arrested changed him into someone who felt like he had to do something about um, um, discrimination. And he says he still has this photograph on his desk today um, to remind him of that. Um, and the other picture is Lydia Coleman. There she is. I'm Lillian Wilkins, sorry, Lillian Wilkins with her aunt, Mabel Grant Young. Now, they were recruited by the Afro to sneak in to uh, Gwyn Oak in um, the morning before the protest started on July 7th. And they were um, fair complexioned, and so they could sneak in with the suntanned um, um, uh, um, Caucasians who were lining up to get into the, into the park. And they spent an hour or so in the park, uh, and then uh, left and told their story to the Afro reporter, and uh, pointed out that nothing terrible had happened to the park because they were there. <laughs> There's a lot of publicity and a lot of press coverage, which was caused very bad for the image of Baltimore County. And um, typing up all the arrest reports was very hard for all the Baltimore County office workers. There were no computers then. And uh, so Baltimore County executive, who was Spiro Agnew, he got the negotiation started. And in two weeks, um, they came to a solution, which was that the park would open to all on August 28, 1963. And on that day, Sharon Langley, her mother and father, came to the park, and she was the first African-American child to go on a ride on this same day as the March on Washington. Now, the integrated park was not the total economic disaster that the, the owners had feared, uh, although, as they predicted, many of the white customers did stop coming. Um, these pictures come from a, a newspaper article in 1971 in the, in the Sun that um, the, the reporter reports that most of the families there that day were black, but as you can see, there were white children there too. The uh, owners had a lot of financial difficulties, but what really did the park in was Hurricane Agnes in 1972. Um, flooded the park and caused so much damage they couldn't afford to repair it. And um, so uh, in 1981, the merry-go-round, which was not badly damaged, you okay? You can cough, it's all right. We won't mind. Um, 
the Mary Graham was not badly damaged, and uh, the concessionaire at the Smithsonian bought it and moved it to Washington, um, where it, it, it always was open to all on the National Mall in Washington, still there today. The, um, the um, owners of the carousel now have had figured out which horse it was that Sharon rode, and they have gotten—they didn't know about the story either before this book came out—and they've gotten all energized by this story, and so they're going to redecorate, repaint that horse, so it looks just like that, and they're going to put her name on the saddle with the date August 28, 1963, and. Um, they, they, they called me last weekend and said they're planning to have a big dedication ceremony on August 28th of this year. They want to bring Sharon Langley in from, in from Los Angeles, where she's a teacher, and um, have her be the first one to ride the rededicated horse. And uh, they're also going to put up a little plaque, because they've gotten a lot of um, people coming and have heard about publicity, because it's gotten a fair amount of publicity in the DC area. Uh, who ask about it, and so they're going to put up a little sign explaining about the uh, connection to uh, to civil rights. And um, they've also, um, oh, those of you who bought your book, you get your um, ticket. They sent tickets for the carousel. So anyone who buys a book tonight gets a free ticket to ride on the carousel. I have to give them out to anybody. I'll give them out to you. Actually, all of you, nice enough to come tonight, you can get a, uh, a free ticket to the carousel if you take a trip to Washington. And the, uh, the park where Gwyn Oak used to be now is the Baltimore County Park. Um, I had a group of high school kids in this morning we talked to, and one of the boys said he lives right near this park. He never knew this. And, and so we, we presented to them as a challenge that maybe this could be a class project for the, the students to try to contact the county and say, couldn't there be a sign at, at this park? So uh, we'll see whether these students succeed. Uh, we talked once about maybe having a photo exhibit for the 50th anniversary here at the library. And if any of you have old photos of, of Gwyn Oak, you know, do, do let me know. And, uh, Maybe we could put together a photo exhibit somewhere about because it's the 50th anniversary, and I think it's important to remember these stories, uh, especially uh, this story, which was uh, with people from all different backgrounds, different races, different religions, different philosophies about um, protest. I mean, the NAACP working with CORE, working with the Urban League, everybody worked together to uh, to to, um, to to succeed at this this this. This, these demonstrations and to try to put an end to a, a very unjust social system. So um, could we show the, the footage now? Are you still up there? Yeah. So we'll show the footage and see, I bet you all recognize a lot of people in this. And um, we'll definitely recognize Lou Coleman is here. And I don't know whether any of the rest of you are in it or not. Um, Mr. Mason was, was hit by a, uh, a rock at the beginning of the July 4th demonstration and had to go get stitches. So he's probably not in the, the July 4th footage. This is courtesy of Susan Hattery at the University of Maryland as well as from the University of Baltimore. So there's, um, that, that's Father Jack. You recognize him? Jack Malpas, who is the uh, minister of the church right near where we grew up. Mr. Mason was telling me that there's been a lot of time making these signs to get ready for all these demonstrations. And as they pointed out um, this morning, and it was true in, in the, put in the book too, that um, the police worked very hard to keep it nonviolent. So these are the ministers about to go off to be arrested, to go into the park. They would go in in a group. The police or the, someone from the um, park would read them the trespass law and tell them that 
you're, you're asked to leave, and if you don't leave, you'll be arrested. And they say they wouldn't leave, and then they arrest them. Was that Marion Bascom? There's Berta Welcome. Mary Welcome. She was the first African-American woman elected to the Maryland legislature. Senator <coughs> Welcome. Yeah, here they are putting the first um, contingent of, uh, of religious leaders into the paddy wagon to go off to, uh, to jail. And a picture of um, Eugene Carson Blake was on the front page of the New York Times the next day, and um, putting him into a um, in, into the van. So uh, he spoke at the March on Washington. There was religious leaders that spoke at the March on Washington before Martin Luther King spoke, and he was one of them who spoke there. You can see him in pictures of the of the people marching. To, that um, he's the one. He still wore his same straw hat. So there's Verda Welcome again. She. Um, in her oral history said that she tried to negotiate with the, um, the owners of the park, because she knew some of them, and um, before the demonstration to try to see if they wouldn't just agree to give in before the demonstration, but they wouldn't. Yep, that's someone who refused to walk. <laughs> it was a very hot day, and the police officers complained that it was too hot to be carrying all these people. But although um, the police officers did um, show remarkable restraint, um, an Afro reporter who uh, was arrested as well said that when they drove, oh, here, here's, the, here's Mr. Professor Coleman. And there's baby Steve, and there's Lou Coleman. There she is. And there's, there's Tom and John. And there they are going off. That's a, Good way to spend a Sunday afternoon, right? <laughs> so they said that the police officers were 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 were, were good about you know not um, you know beating people up or anything, but that the, uh, the this one Afro reporter who himself got arrested um, said that as they rode in the in the bus to the police station, the bus driver drown tried to drown out their um, singing of protest songs by playing loud music on the radio. So. So yeah, so the, there, this is the crowd of, of onlookers and hecklers, and they brought out um, police dogs that try to keep people in line. Yes, poor people carrying to the buses. There's more. And this is a re repeat of the, the picture we saw earlier. And it was very well organized um, uh, if people didn't really want to get arrested, because it could be dangerous to be arrested. Um, uh, you could lose your job if, or if you had a boss who didn't approve of that kind of thing. So some people who didn't want to get arrested, or as one minister, one minister apologized for not getting arrested because he had to perform a wedding uh, that day. So um, you could just pick it instead. And then coming up now is, is um, oh, this the priest. Yeah, the Catholic Church was very, very involved. These are the counter demonstrators. <coughs> and the police tried very hard to keep them apart, the two um, picket lines. 
Now here's the police station where they were taken and the people um, picketed outside, protested outside the police station as well. And then here uh, inside the jail and they're all singing, we shall overcome. Or, you know, and, uh, um, one of the um, people who was arrested that summer, who was a high school friend of mine, um, Mike Furstenberg, he told me that um, he spent the night in jail and he was in the jail cell along with William Stone Coffin. And there was a, a large number of people there. He said about 30 people all in the one, in one cell. And he said that it was the most, one of the most exciting um, evenings of his, of his young life because uh, William Stone Coffin used this as a teaching opportunity. And he basically conducted a <laughs> seminar most of the night you know, on world politics and religion and faith. And, and he said it was, uh, it was a very uh, um, emotional experience. So that's it for the footage. So, um, let's see, how much time do we have left? Oh, we have a fair amount of time. So I think um, it'd be nice to have each each one of our guests, our civil rights veterans here, to uh, get up and you know speak for about five minutes on why um, you know how you felt about um, taking part in these events back then, and then we'll open it up that you can ask them questions or and and, and Mr. Crockett, too, if you, you, you could come and um, join us down in the front and just talk about you know, w what it meant to you to do this. And then uh, if you have any questions you want to ask them, uh, please feel free. So who, who should we start with? Uh, why don't we start with Joyce Dennison, the one who didn't take part in the, but who took part in the pre-demonstration, the one that took place at, at, um, at uh, Northwood Theater. And they are taping this for the library. So if everybody would just come up and talk through the mic, that would be good. Good evening. Can everyone hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Right. My name is Joyce Dennison. I'm originally from a small town in Pennsylvania called Kennett Square. My religious upbringing was Quaker and Roman Catholic. When I graduated from high school, I decided that I wanted to come to Morgan State because it was far enough away from home where mom and dad couldn't check on me every minute. Yeah. Because of where I came from, there was always passive resistance to what was injustice. So coming to Morgan, it was just more of the same. The first night of demonstrations to attempt to integrate Northwood Movie Theater, they were arrested, but they were back in the dorm by 10 o'clock the next morning, you know. Second night, more students were arrested, back in the dorm by 10 a.m. I figured three's my lucky number. <laughs> I get arrested the third night. There were taken before the judge in groups of 30 or 35. 
the judge gives us a stern lecture where your parents have sent you to college to learn and I am going to teach you a lesson you are under $500 bail with the 34 other people you couldn't have gotten $50 out of us <laughs> so off the Pine Street Jail we go thinking next morning 10 o'clock back on campus next morning 10 o'clock great big prism bus pulls off loads us on the bus didn't see Morgan's campus ended up in the city jail you know get the city jail and we're thinking what's this you know what we did not realize was number one no matter how many organizations were supporting us behind the scenes nobody had five hundred dollars for the first 35 that were arrested let alone the next seven or eight groups that were arrested that night so we ended up spending three days in jail the only way we were released is we had sent SOS messages to other colleges, mostly big name colleges, Harvard, Yale, Penn, you know. Somehow or another, a news release was in the paper where the reply from most of the colleges was, do not worry coming down this weekend planning on being guests of the city which means we had overloaded not only the financial burden of housing us the regular prisoners weren't too fond of doing more laundry than the regular population or were they too fond of feeding us? Because what we had for three days was in the morning oatmeal, in the afternoon soup, in the evening hot dogs and oatmeal for three days. So there was, you know, the cuisine was not great, but it was a fabulous experience. And thank you. <laughs> yes. Um, well, to begin with, I wasn't uh, I wasn't there the day the uh, uh, park opened up because I was over in Washington listening to Martin Luther King, and that was a great event. But um, as to why why I did it, I don't know. Uh, it was Sunday. This this was the second wave of the demonstrations. 
And it was Sunday morning, and my husband said, let's take the kids and go get canoe, go canoeing. And I said, no, let's go take the kids and get arrested. <laughs> and <laughs> so he, being a sociologist and very concerned about doing studies and getting things just right, said, well, I'm not sure I really believe in the demonstrations. And I said, well, I'm not sure I do either. But while we're deciding, let's go get arrested. Um, now, I was, uh, you know, I had read in the paper about the previous uh, demonstration on the 4th, and things seemed to have gone very well. And I, so I really wasn't worried about taking the children. And I thought, I don't know, this is family, and <laughs> we're all going to stick together. So, uh, so uh, we went in. And something that I've, all, I've thought about ever since, um, I mean, as, as you showed, that you could demonstrate if you wanted to. Or, well, we could have gone in. What was wrong? Uh, uh, there's no way we would have been stopped. But it was planned that when you signed up to be arrested, you had to match white people and black people. So there was a black couple that went in with us. And the minute we stepped over the line, surrounded by policemen. And um, I think you may have noticed in the picture of us, and, and my son Tom um, was the only one of us who looked worried. The rest of us were just smiling like, well, this is really, this is really fun. Uh, he seemed to uh, be more aware of things than we were. But anyway, so we were herded into a police car because buses had already taken off. And I guess enough people had been arrested that we didn't go to jail. We went to Pikesville Armory and sat on the bleachers from about the middle of the afternoon, or maybe before that, till the middle of the night. And I wondered, I mean, there, there were not many people there with their children, and it looked like you know, we're sitting there on bleachers waiting for the uh, fingerprints, mug shots, that stuff. And it looked like the people with children were the last ones. And so I think maybe that was to punish us. Well, but did they have that wrong? Because uh, my, well, I was holding the baby and the baby was sleeping and, and I was nursing the baby, so what's the problem with that? And the boys, boy, they had a great time because people were passing in milkshakes, hot dogs, hamburgers, ice cream, and this center of all that attention. I mean, what more can you want? Now, the only downside was that when, when their mother and father got in line to finally, you know, be fingerprint mugshots, the children didn't get the fingerprints and mugshots. So that was the downside of the whole thing. But, um, but it was something that, um, well, but you know, they got to stay up till the middle of the night. I mean, my gosh, it just all, uh, in general, it was really a great experience. I think now Tom, as I said, the one that looked worried, maybe he can give a different picture of it. But uh, it, was, um, it was something that, uh, I've had people ask, well, why did you do it? Well, I just had the feeling it was a thing to do. I mean, um, why, why, how, how can you not, how can you not do something where it looked like, boy, at last we've caught on to how to, how to really, how to really get things moving. 
and it just seemed I am just so so pleased and just uh, it's just so wonderful to be able to know that I had a small part in doing that. I was a member of CORE and I, I had gone on another demonstration uh, but uh, just in general it was it was just a great moment in uh, in history and it was so great to be a part of it. So let's see what Tom has to say. <laughs> yes, well, for, for my brother and I, it, it really was a, a bit of an adventure. We, uh, we, we knew what was going on. It was something that we, um, we thought was important. But for us, it was primarily an adventure. Um, and I did sort of look worried in that picture. But um, it was, um, and I think I was the only one that really looked worried in that picture. Um, but and it was something serious. But um, you know, I think as, as my mom said, um, for us it was it was fun. It was a night out. Uh, we had a great time in the armory. My only real disappointment for the whole evening was was as she mentioned um, when they went off to get uh, fingerprinted and mugshot that uh, I was asleep and I wasn't woken up until afterwards, and so I never I never got my fingerprints taken. But um, I, I think I survived that. And thank you, Amy, for, for bringing this all together. Good afternoon. I'm Lydia Wilkins, and I was on the picture with my Auntie Mabel. And I wish that I could say at 11 that I went on that journey for the real purpose that it ended up being. I went to go on the Ferris wheel and to get the ice cream and to get in the park. I knew, really, I didn't understand. I didn't comprehend. I heard my parents tell stories and all of my relatives, but we lived in a close-knit community, and everybody looked like my family looked. I found out later that my dad was white, my mom was black, and they got married in another state because they couldn't get married in Maryland. Um, but again, everybody in my family looked like I look, and it wasn't until I became an adult that I understood the real impact. I heard stories that I, I wouldn't want to repeat, and I realized how much it hurt. Uh, things that were said about black people that I was exposed to because people didn't know that I was black. And when I was growing up, you, you didn't say you were biracial or mixed. When I was growing up, you were one or the, one or the other. And my family chose that we were black. We went to black schools. We lived in black neighborhoods. And it was a real culture shock for me when I ended up going to a high school that had white students there. I mean, it just was so foreign to me. And I look back on that. And over the years, I thought, uh, everyone has a purpose in life. And I felt that I struggled through life trying to figure out, well, why am I here? What is my purpose? And one day Amy called me because she had the article that was in the newspaper that I couldn't find and I had forgotten about. But I have to say now, and I work in the Office of Equal Opportunity and Civil Rights, and I have that picture. I show it to everybody. I take the book into work like a little kid because that is one of my proudest moments. And even though I didn't understand it when I was only 11, as a woman, I understand what it means to have people hate you and exclude you. And I'm so glad to be a part of bringing us all together for a better cause. Thank you.
My name is Charles Mason, and uh, I was involved in the Gwen Oak situation. In a roundabout way, I got to it. I grew up in East Baltimore. My family was from the south, from Virginia. And I heard many horror stories, um, which I'd rather not even repeat now because they are so horrible. And the reason that they did come north, I grew up on Madison Street at Broadway. Uh, we were the second house to the corner of Broadway. I wasn't supposed to go around on Broadway because Broadway was white. You know, and I could not figure out the fact that I had to scrub those steps and sweep that pavement and keep the curb clean why I couldn't go around there as long as I took care of where I lived. Uh, on Broadway was mainly interns, um, lawyers, a uh, few doctors, well, a lot of doctors, but there were no black folks living on Broadway. Now, I thought it rather strange that I was always around on Broadway because I would go around and talk to the interns and they were very friendly with me. They didn't lynch me or they didn't try to lynch me or, you know, they sat and talked to me because they would give me their magazines and their books when they finished with them. So I'd take them back and I would read them. And I forgot to tell you that I was sickly. So I stayed mainly around my house if I was not around there. But around there, they would always give me their journals. Um, the earliest I can remember was um, uh, National Geographic and anything that they got when they finished reading them or using them for classes or whatever they gave them to me. Now, I would read them and I would absorb that. And if I wasn't there, I was down at the library on Broadway and Millman Street. Uh, sometimes hard to remember. It has been quite a few years. Uh, and at an early age, I was reading about uh, Gandhi and, and, you know, I couldn't relate why I was not supposed to go around on Broadway. Everybody around there treated me decently, very nice. Um, around there, in fact, as I was saying this morning, I fell in love with sports cars, and I've been driving one ever since. They had MGs. I now ha I've had eight MGs, I think nine. <laughs> I now drive a Miata. But uh, they taught me what gear shifts were. <laughs> And, you know, these guys were decent to me. They were really decent to me. On top of giving me a little bit of knowledge, when I finished with the books, I had a place out back that I used to store them. Now, when I stored enough, I could take them down to Central Avenue and I could sell them. So that was a two purpose. I was getting knowledge and I was also getting money, <laughs> you know. And, and those guys were really, really decent to me. And later on, I, I used to ask, I said, you know, why can't we move around on Broadway? Their houses were bigger. And say, you know, you can't move to Broadway. Why? Because that's where the white folks live. Hmm. Thought about it. I remember, I remember this as clearly as I remember standing here now. I was really small and, and I, I used to read every night my sister would take me to the store and I would get a comic book 
And if it was, in the wintertime, I would get a cardi. And if it was in the summer, I would get a snowball with ice cream dip on it. So anyway, I said, you know, this looks pretty exciting, cowboys. Somebody said, what do you want to be when you grow up? I said, a cowboy. They said, you can't. I said, well, you know, I'm going to learn how to ride a horse, you know, and I'm going to do all those other things. They said, there are no black cowboys. I said, well, I... Now you've really knocked me for a loop. A little bit more reading, I said, you know, a lawyer. That's what I mean. There's a lot of things I'm going to work on, you know. <laughs> so anyway, by and large, uh, then segregated communities were, well, I was really protected because my, my sister and her husband had businesses. I worked for them, you know, in an integrated neighborhood. We were treated like the big folks in the neighborhood. This was by all of the white folks in the neighborhood because they had the shoe shop, the cleaners, the drugstore, you know, the music for the, for the uh, young folks to come in. They got their clothes clean there. All this in a segregated community went well. I would go around on Caroline Street and there were 16, I think there were 16 or 17 doctors and lawyers on Caroline Street who lived well. You know, they had nice cars, they were well dressed. And I said, you know, that's what I would like to do. Be well dressed, clean, you know, learn. And my mother and father, even though they did not have much education, I would have never thought of hooking school. I might have talked about it, I might have fantasized about it, but I never thought of hooking school. I enjoyed going. I enjoyed reading. I read now about two or three hours a day, every day. And that started when I was like four. I remember reading the newspaper and people thought I was joking, sitting on the steps reading the newspaper. I was either four or five. They thought I was looking at the pictures, but I was reading because my sister had helped me um, learn how to read. So anyway, uh, after working for my sister and my brother-in-law, I had to go out in the real world. I worked at the Memorial Stadium to supplement my salary working with her and my brother-in-law. I ran into racism there. I said, well, I'll try something else. So I went downtown and I got a job working in window display, which I really enjoyed doing. And one day somebody looks up and notices, you know, that colored guy is walking around with a tie and a sport coat and a pair of pants on. Why not? Everybody else in window display walked around with a tie, a sport coat, and a pair of pants on. So they called me in and said, look, you've got to wear that gray uniform. You know, why? You know, I, I'm not going to give out names now. I probably got some relatives in here. I said, they don't have to wear it. Why do I have to wear it? They said, because you're colored. But what has colored got to do with my clothes and that uniform, I'm not putting it on. So okay, you're going to get fired. Well, luckily, the one of the owners of the store came to my defense because I did a good job. I wasn't late. I was always there. did, you know, what was expected of me. But it still didn't persuade everybody else in the store that I did not have to wear a gray uniform. I was not going to wear a gray uniform, you know. 
That was okay, so I said, well, let me see. United States government has got to be pretty fair. That's got to be a place that I can advance and utilize my talents. Lo and behold, post office in, in the fifth, not much difference. Social security, not much difference. Uh, tables where the black folks ate lunch, tables where the white, white folks ate lunch. You know, am I going to spend the rest of my life <laughs> fighting this battle by myself? So uh, I ran into quite a few uh, conflicts with Social Security because, well, later on we did, with CORE, close it down for one day, which I can tell you, I guess you would know that I did not retire from Social Security. Anyway, uh, I said, you know, it's, I was, I, was, I was being very frustrated. You could, a white person there, we did get records. I did get records and some other people. I can't say how, but I did. You could be white with eighth grade education and be a supervisor. There were black folks pushing sleds at Social Security that had master's degrees, you know. I was really going out of my mind, and it was a fella in the unit that had said, you, you know, something's going to happen to you. I want you to meet somebody. So I said, okay. So that evening, I think he said, 7.38, I'll pick you up. And he picked me up, and he drove me down to uh, the core office and introduced me to Walter Carter. And that changed my life. Uh, I think John Roma can tell you by walking in the office, it was not palatial, not by long shot, <laughs> but there was so much knowledge and there were so many tactics and ways of doing things. And I, I, I came to the realization that I couldn't win that war by myself because something terrible was going to happen to me as my mother kept telling me, you know, and uh, from there, um, uh, well, in core, we all did whatever had to be done. Uh, I couldn't stay away from the office. Every day uh, I'd stop in there and my wife would say, are, are you going to the, the office down there, that office that you spend so much time? Uh, I got to stop in and see what's going on, you know. But later on, she came around and she had all of the teachers in her school painting signs and they would have signs stacked up on a sun parlor whenever we had whenever we needed signs, because we always needed signs, you know. And uh, I, for the rest of my life, I worked with juveniles and I worked with uh, retired seniors. Uh, but I, I think best I tried to give some knowledge to the youth so that you can s just go on to work on a job, going home, saying I belong to the golfing club or, you know, that you've, you've got to give something back to get anything out and to pave a way for other young folks. And uh, it's been a great learning experience and I am still involved in the community even now. Uh, I've, I'm on the advisory board of Bayview and John Hopkins. Um, I'm with the uh, Freedom School at uh, Pleasant Hope Baptist Church. 
community, a lot of community organizations. But I, I, I don't think that you can just rest on your laurels because one happy day I saw uh, President Obama elected. And I said, wow, you know, we've reached a great milestone. Four months later, I saw the undercurrent stirring in the United States. And I cannot believe that some of the things I hear or read in the newspaper or hear on some of the talk shows and some of the mainstream television, I see that there's much more work that needs to be done. And if you don't learn something from the past, you're prone to repeat it. And I want to thank Amy for bringing it. Thank you. In the post-Civil War era, one-third of the Cowboys were African-American. <laughs> they told you a lie. I know little things like that because I went to Glen Oak Park long before it integrated, long before I knew about segregation there because I'm a big fan of hillbilly music. And they had all the great hillbilly artists appear at uh, at Gwen Oak Park. So I went all there all the time to hear the country music. Now you put that together with getting arrested there in the Civil Rights Movement and you got yourself some real diversity. I do have to say one thing in criticism of the Civil Rights Movement. Civil Rights Movement killed my dog. I was really poor when I had my first job at Friends School. I was making $3,800 a year, and I walked into the business manager's office, and I said, John, I want to let my health insurance lapse. He said, your health insurance? You can't do that. You've got two kids. I said, John, i got an important expenditure. I've been wanting to do this for almost 20 years, since I was five years old and read National Geographic. He said, what is it? I said, I want to buy a golden retriever puppy. So I let my health insurance lapse, bought a golden retriever puppy, got arrested at Vernon's Roller Rink, which was one of those places that wasn't included in the public accommodations law. Since I was too poor to have a phone, I was not able to tell my wife, whom I promised I would never be arrested again, that I had been arrested at Vernon's Roller Rink protesting segregation. Actually, I grabbed the front wheel of a paddy wagon and wouldn't let it leave after it arrested everybody else. So they arrested me and said, Romer, we got you this time. We're going to get you for resisting arrest, for uh, blocking a traffic, for interfering with an officer. And of course, by the time we got down to the station house, I was just one more face, so they forgot that. Nevertheless, I wound up in jail. We decided not to accept bail and to sit in a county jail for um, three nights. My wife, of course, doesn't know where I am. I had promised her I wouldn't get arrested. Um, I asked Walter Carter to, he didn't get arrested, to um, send her a telegram um, because we didn't have a phone. He did. What I didn't know is they no longer delivered telegrams. They only call by phone or stick it in the mail. Of course, this was in the weekend. My wife didn't get the mail. Uh, so finally, I, I got out. I called my wife. I called a neighbor and had her run upstairs and get my wife. And my wife jumped in the car, distraught. I'd been gone for three days. She didn't know what happened to me. As she pulled out, she didn't look under the car. She ran over our first golden retriever and killed her. 
one other odd fact. I was teaching at Friends School at the time, and in my seventh grade class, which was largely about civil rights in American history, and I was chatting up going Oak Park, and it's nefarious stuff. There's a little seventh grade boy sitting in there named Price. It was James Price's son. James Price was the owner of Gwen Oak Park. Baltimore is such a dandy place. <laughs> I need to refer to some of the pictures that Amy showed. Reed's Drug Store, Hooper's Restaurant, and Hustler's. My father managed the food divisions at each of those places at one time or another. My father was a roaring segregationist. Here's how he found out about me. I came home from college. He was looking at the television set, and he said, you see those people outside of Hustlers? You see what they're doing? They're ruining my business. They're destroying me. What do you think about that? And I said, Dad, I'm vice chairman of the organization. <laughs> I'm so glad Charles Mason mentioned Walter Carter. So often we have these conversations about the civil rights movement, and Walter Carter, the greatest, there ought to be a monument to Walter Carter on the highways leading into Baltimore. He was the great strategist of the civil rights movement in Baltimore. And the fact that his name lives on at the uh, social work building at uh, the University of Maryland, but he's so often neglected and forgotten. He was one of the great minds of the civil rights movement. He, he taught most of us the strategies that we use, and I'll come back to that in a minute. I also want to mention Fred Weiskel, who also has been forgotten. Fred Weiskel, at one point, was the entire ACLU, the entire lawyer corps for the entire civil rights movement. Nobody else would handle those kinds of cases. But Fred did it all for free, did it all out of his hip pocket, and um, he was extremely unpopular in his own community for much of the work he did on behalf of the civil rights movement. So I would encourage you not to forget those names. And one other name you probably all know if you're from Baltimore. There was a TV guy at WJZ who came out to all of these demonstrations. He was the only TV guy who would give us favorable coverage. In fact, he was usually the only TV guy who showed up. His name was Jerry Turner. One other fact about Jerry Turner. Jerry Turner was a white boy from Mississippi. The things that you saw up here about Gwen Oak Park actually didn't start in 1963. They started in the 50s when Coeur uh, went to Gwen Oak Park and demonstrated every year on All Nations Day. They carried picket signs, and that was very nice. In fact, you saw Ada Jenkins. I was pleased to see her picture there because she'd done it for 10 years, just carried the picket sign. When I got to CORE, as uh, Amy said, we had decided different strategies were in order. And the strategies were to figure out how you put pressure on people and how you force them nonviolently to do the right thing. You don't carry picket signs anymore. Here's what you do. This is 1962 on All Nations Day, or pr prior to All Nations Day, a few weeks. I walked up with some black friends to the gate, and I said, we want to come in and ride on the roller coaster. And they said, you son of a bitch, you've been here before. You know you can't come in here. Why don't you give me your name and your address? I knew he was going to ask me this. So I said, took out a little piece of paper, took out my pen and said, suppose we give me your name and your address instead. And he said, you insolent little bastard. He wheeled back with his billy club. It was a security guard. 
those things have lead in the end, and I thought, oh boy, here goes the Ivy League education. I'll be sitting in a chair for the rest of my life and drooling. He goes back like this, then thinks he's about, remembers he's about to kill me, drops the billy club, and he goes, bam, smashes me in the face, and breaks my glasses. Thank you, stupid. Because we had got an Afro-American photographer hiding in the bushes. The reason we did this was because the nations involved in All Nations Day had been called and asked to discontinue their support of it. And they said to us, we can't get involved in American politics. If we're invited to go someplace, we always go. And I said, after they see this photograph, they're not going to go anymore. So we sent the photograph of me being smashed in the face around to the various embassies. And I called up the most important embassy, India, brown-skinned people with a billion citizens. And I said, look, you're going to participate in this. There's going to be more of it on All Nations Day this year, and you're going to be in the thick of it. I called India first for a reason. I figured they'd back out. They did. As soon as India backed out, I called all the other embassies and said, India backed out. Are you still coming? So in 1962, they had All Nations Day with no nations. Mr. Price had hired plenty of goons, though, to take care of us. And knowing that, I walked up to the front gate, so all the goons came up to the front gate. And they said, Romer, you ain't going to get through all of us. And of course, the rest of the guys, the black people, went around back and crossed the stream and came in from the back. Somebody down in the park screamed, oh my God, the niggers got in the back way. So all the thugs ran down to confront people in the park. I walked through the gate. I got down in the middle and they said, Romer, we got you now. Two of them grabbed me. One of them came over and started smashed me, broke my glasses again, ripped the, the sleeve off my jacket, stomped up and down on me, and threw me at the feet of a Baltimore County police officer and said, now arrest him. Perfect, because there were representatives from one of the big retail clerks unions in New York in the park that day. We invited them down to see what the park was like. And they said, whoa, this is bad news. This is like Mississippi. We want to do something about that. And they participated in 1963 in the big demonstration. This is what one of the things that helped set it up. I'm not interested in telling stories just because they're wonderful tales, which they are, and just because they show that America is capable of change, which it is. I think the way people ought to think about these stories is to say, what is in there for today? What kinds of strategies can we use against oppression today? And I sat here looking at the, uh, uh, Amy's film, and I said, women with babies. You don't like gun shops in your neighborhoods? I just love to see lots of mothers down in front of the gun shops with their babies carrying a sign. I, I, I'm, I just hope some goon will come in. You're taking away my Second Amendment rights. I'm going to smash you in the face, woman. Please do it. Or I think of this. I imagine mothers in Baltimore City who are really sick of underfunded schools of their children getting a second-class education. And looking out in Baltimore County when they build a new high school or a new elementary, let's do an elementary school, out in, say, Owings Mills. And they say, you know what? My kids get screwed, and I don't want to hear about jurisdictional differences. I don't care if Baltimore City isn't part of Baltimore County. I want my kid to get an education. So we all get together. We put the mothers and their babies on the bus. On the first day of school, out in Owings Mills, there they all are 
sitting in the classroom waiting for their education. Now, I don't know what would come out of that, but I bet something different from what we have now might come out of it. It's, it's what Martin Luther King used to call creative disruption. That's what we need, creative disruption. Occupy is trying it, but mostly what I see of Occupy is uh, we don't want to make any demands. You've got to have demands. You've got to identify the Bank of America, and you've got to shut Bank of America down if they're the bad guys. So when you look at these things and read Amy's book, try to think about how these kinds of strategies, how these kinds of uh, events can be recapitulated against the bad guys we have today. History is wonderful. The future is even better. Thank you. Good evening. My name is James Crockett. I'm a native Baltimorean. I was born before the Depression. I got more religion from the city of Baltimore during the Depression than I have in any church that I've attended because everybody was on the same level. I lived on a street was called Hall Street, H-A-W. There were only two blocks. It went from Fremont Avenue down to Penn Street and from Penn Street over to Emory Street. We're right around the corner from Babe Ruth House. Most of everything that we received came by horse and wagon. On Saturdays, Farmers would drive their trucks in, and their produce they would sell from the trucks. Many of the streets in Baltimore, two vehicles could not pass each other because the streets were so small. And this was a cobblestone street, and we had cobblestone on the front of the curve, and then the, the sidewalks were all brick. So you had different um, jobs to do to pull the, meat, uh, the milkweed and the grass between uh, the bricks. My first uh, picket line was in 1947 with Paul Robeson in Washington. At that time, when you started picketing in Washington and you had a large group, you went on buses and cars. They had the policemen there, and the policemen would divide you, send one group one way, another group another way, so that you could not congregate together at the place that you were supposed to meet. Many people got lost, went back to the bus, and did not participate. I remember Gwen Oak Park because I went into the fire department in 1954, and I was a member of Douglas Memorial Church, where Reverend Baston was the minister. And it was a neat thing to see them going out picketing. And I decided that I could not picket because I was in the fire department. If they saw me picketing, I would lose my job. So I did not picket initially at, or when they were picketing Gwinnell Park. 
But later on, I discovered that all I had to do was take my firefighter's cap off, take my tie off, put a different tie on, take my coat off, put a sports coat on, and they could not identify me. And that's how I started picketing. Um, there is a family here in Baltimore that I have not heard anybody mention. The name is Sidney Hollander Sr. Um, they had a group that was called Fellowship House, and then you mentioned uh, Ada Jenkins. Ada Jenkins was a musician. Her father, her husband was a caterer, and they had something that was called Fellowship House that the uh, Hollanders funded because there was no money to support anything. Um, you had Reuben Kramer, a renowned sculptures, uh, donated his services to teaching children um, to trade at Fellowship House. Now, in my picketing, I started at the Ford's Theater before I met uh, Paul Robeson. And it seemed to be my job to go up to the actors to try to get them to join the picket line. Many of them joined the picket line until it was showtime and they had to go in and make changes. The worst person I met was Rex Harrison, who was an Englishman, and he decided that it was not his affair, so he would not join the picket line. So from then on, I decided not to go and participate in any of his movies. Uh, uh, it didn't hurt him, but <laughs> Tallulah Bankhead, her father was Senator Bankhead from Alabama. He was a segregationist, and she joined the picket line with us at the Ford's Theater. Now, later on, I decided that when Gwen Oak was doing in his heyday, I would go out there with them. But there was another fellow here by the name of Walter that nobody mentions, uh, Walter Lively. Now, Walter Lively, at an instance, could muster 50 people to join a picket line. And all you had to do is call Walter and say, I need, he said, what do you need, some live bodies? You say, yes, right there. And the pickets would be there. You had the signs, they had the bodies, and that's what happened. I had some unusual experiences in segregation. Um, in 1956, a fellow by the name of Alan Amici was playing for the Baltimore Coats, and Carl Rosenblum decided to set him up in a restaurant that was called Amici's, and it was on Town Road. My wife and another couple went up to Westminster to the training camp, and after it was over, we saw Alan and we talked to him. He said, look, when you get back to Baltimore, give me a play. That means give me some business. We went back, we stopped in Amici's, and they would not serve us. So I said, may I speak to the manager? And the guy said, yes. And who did he bring out? It was Joe Campanella, 
who was an ex-Baltimore coat. So he took the four of us back into a booth and he sat down and he said, I know what you're going through. And he said, I'm an Italian Catholic and tears start coming down his eyes. And he said, I know what, I know what you're going through. He said, but we operate under the restaurant laws in Baltimore and I'm sorry, we can't serve you. And he says, I'll tell Alan that you were here to give us a play and we could not accept it. Now I picket in many picket lines in Washington and I decided that when my grandchildren were old enough, they were going to get the experience of picketing. I want to tell you this, if you've never been on a picket line, join a picket line. If you only walk around one time to get the experience. Although we had our goals in mind, there was fun on the picket line. The priests that would walk on the picket line, they had literature they were reading, and they would never walk into you because it was a circle, and they had fun doing it. So I had my grandchildren to participate in pickets uh, when they were three years old. And my youngest granddaughter said to me, Granddaddy, why are we walking in the street? You told us not to walk in the street. I said, this is a picket line, and it's all right to walk in the street. So she said, what's a picket line? I said, this is a picket line. We're fighting for equal rights. So she said, okay. And then uh, another block, she said to me, granddad, she said, I'm tired of walking. Will you pick me up? So I said, if I pick you not, if I pick you up, you will not be walking for civil rights. So she said, okay. And about two, two more blocks, she, I said to her, and I thought, I said, now this child is tired of walking. So I'll pick her up and carry her a while. So I, I said to her, let me pick you up, baby. She said, do we have equal rights now? I said, <laughs> I said, no. And tears came down my eyes because I'd been out there since 1947 trying to get uh, equal rights. Now, my main thing was that I'm very fortunate in that my livelihood was real estate. Um, I was selected to serve on the Real Estate Board of Greater Baltimore on there um, as a director. And I never knew of anything. I heard about people talk blackball, blackball, and I didn't know what it was all about. So at the meetings, if a person applied for membership and you didn't want that person to come in, all you had to do was put the black ball into the hat. And if it was a black ball in there, you did not have to give a reason why the person was not accepted. So when I found that out, and many of the people that I knew were being blackballed, I knew them and they were good people and they were white. So I decided that when they put the black ball in and it comes past me, I'll take the black ball out <laughs> and it wouldn't be any black balls. Nobody could be black ball. I did that for about three months and then they decided that they would put three black balls in the hat so that somebody could get one. Now, my worst experience was at um, Randallstown Police Station. 
I put a sign on a property on the corner of Fairview and Liberty Road, and it was against the law. Somebody in the police department, Baltimore County Police Department, took the sign and took it to the Randallstown Police Station. And the sergeant there called my wife and told her that he had one of my signs and that he would like for me to come out and pick it up. Now, Randallstown was like Mississippi during those days. So I kept telling my wife I was going out to pick up the sign, and I didn't go. So she got another call, and she said to me, when are you going out to pick up the sign? I said, I will look at my calendar. She said, no, you're going tonight. So I said, okay. She said, I'm going with you. I said, okay. We got in the car, we rode out there, and I said to her, if I'm in this place over five minutes, I want you to call Reverend Baskin, tell him to call Judge Watts, Judge Solomon Baylor, uh, and Judge Allen and tell him that I'm arrested and tell him to get somebody out here. When I walked into the police station and got to the desk, I said uh, to the policeman, I said, my name is James Crockett and I want to pick up a sign. So when I said that, my wife didn't sit in the car. She was right behind me. Sergeant came out and he said, Mr. Crockett, he said, this sign has been here he said, I want you to take your sign. I know what you're trying to do, but will you do me a favor? He says, and this was on Thursday. He said, I'm going on vacation on Monday. He said, I don't care what you do after Monday. If you want to put your sign up, you go ahead. He said, but don't put it up until I go on my vacation because I don't want your sign back in anymore. And when I saw him laughing, I decided that I would not put the sign up but I put it up on Sunday afternoon because so, he was going on vacation on that, that, that next day. Um, picket lines are good. The last picket line I walked in was about the library. Under Mass Schaefer, he appointed a lot of people to the board, and some of them were for Baltimore County. And the Sun paper had articles in there, how can county residents run the city library? And we picked City Hall. And um, the president of the NAC was Enola McMillan at the time. Ms. McMillan had to be in her 90s. It was cold, it was snow on the ground. She had on galoshes. And I said to some people, if Ms. McMillan can pick it, we can pick it. So we started picketing. Eventually, they did not approve the people from Baltimore County to serve on this board. And I think we got some relief. If you've never been in a picket line, join one and you'll see what's going on. It's a lot of fun. Thank you.